Welcome to Office Baggage, where two corporate women unpack our week in business. Every week, co-hosts Ray Parent and Marcy Tweet tackle the WTF business topics you want to talk about on every rung of the business ladder. Bring your baggage. We'll We'll unpack it. This week on Office Baggage, we're talking with Alexis Gladstone, the founder of Interlead. We're covering all things leadership development, women and the glass ceiling, and personal branding. Stay tuned. Hello, Office Baggage listeners. It's Marcy, back again, again on a roll here, recorded and posting the same day. It's Wednesday, May 13th. I think it's week 912 of the COVID-19 crisis. Hope you are all safe, well, happy, healthy. If you're listening to this intro, big preview for next week. Ray is back on Office Baggage. We are recording an episode, maybe even two, this weekend. I did not bury her in my backyard. She is still alive and well and dealing with her kids and her kick-ass job out on the East Coast. But she's coming back this weekend and you'll hear from her next week. But today, I'm incredibly excited. I'm always excited to talk to incredible women on this podcast, but part of the joy of podcasting is also getting to talk to my friends. And Alexis Gladstone is one of my dear friends. Uh, I adore her. She's the founder of Intolead, a Chicago-based consulting practice that is dedicated to aligning people, strategies, and business results. She works with clients to work on next generation leadership, effectiveness of individuals, growth in sales, and organizational change. She does it all. She's incredible. Her passion for empowering women is second to none. She's a trainer and a coach on women in leadership. She's an incredible expert on personal branding. She's traveled all over the world, worked in many, many industries. She's just a gem. I know you will love hearing from her. So stay tuned for my conversation with Alexis next. I'm joined today by my dear friend and business maven, Alexis Gladstone, the principal for Intolead. Alexis, thanks so much for joining us on Office Baggage. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. And I'm, I'm a business maven. Wow. Yes. See, you just, I give you all <laughs> kinds of new titles. People give me their title in their company and I always mess it up, but I add new things. Um, I love it. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with that. <laughs> I love it. I'm so excited to have you on. I, I always love having people who are my friends in real life on because it takes a little bit of the pressure off. Um, not that I don't love meeting new people on this podcast, but you and I have been friends for a lot of years now. So I'm excited. I feel like we never talk about your business enough. So I'm excited to hear about some of the things that, that you're doing and the things that you're focused on and tell our listeners about them as well. Awesome. Can't wait. So let's jump in. You have been, and as I introduced you, our our listeners heard your bio before, leadership development, training, organizational change. But let's start by talking about leadership development because I think it's a hot topic, especially in these uncertain times. (laughs) As we keep saying. (laughs) every, Every podcast in the new normal in these uncertain times. But what I'd love to talk about leadership development in the lens of as we start here is at a macro level, because I think it's easy 
to think. We've all been in, in a corporation or in a business where it feels like leadership development is a little bit selfish, right? When your higher ups, higher up gets to go to a big conference or, you know, your boss is out at a leadership training, it can sometimes feel a little selfish and it can sometimes feel a little us versus them. But talk me through for anybody at any level in a company at a macro level, why is leadership development a good investment in a company's overall organizational development and culture? Is it important to the full organization and not just to the individual leader? Yeah, absolutely. It's really funny because my first organization I worked for, I grew up in, it was a culture of you actually were given money to go to two classes a year Mm -hmm. and to get some type of development, plus all of the internal things that they had to offer. So I was kind of brought up as like, doesn't every organization work like this? Isn't that kind of the mindset of everybody? But you're right. I mean, a lot of people in a lot of different organizations, they have different cultures and different thoughts and stuff around it. I think one of the things is when you think about, you know, everything you read, when people do leave an organization, they don't leave the organization. Usually they're leaving the manager. Right. And so one of the things that leadership development does is help with that whole, how are you, how are managers leading? You know, there's also a lot of um, statistics out there. I think it's the conference board has done some studies and talking about, you know, if you invest in people and what that does, and I've read everything, it can um, do anything from your stock market returns of up to five times more with organizations who do take time and do, do spend the money to invest in people. So there's benefits in that way too. Absolutely. So it's interesting when I often think of, of CEOs and, and the leaders in a company, there's the old adage, the fish rots from the head, right? So it's the, the sense of, can we make, if you make leaders stronger, is there a trickle down effect? Well, you hope there is. Because one, when leaders really get it, when leaders really take development seriously for themselves, they're going to be more apt to um, allow it for other people. And as they become better leaders, I mean, let's think of some of the things that really cost organizations money, turnover, sales, you know, those are types of things that having good leadership and having it, as you say, trickle down, you know, to the top on down, can really impact those things. You don't have the attrition you, and you have you know, better performing groups and teams of people. Yeah, it's interesting. I, um, I have a friend who her boss is a C-suite leader and went to one of those, it wasn't Tony Robbins, but let's pretend it was, um, one of those very expensive leadership trainings. And there was some resentment when he went in to do this big training. And he had such an aha moment from it. He ended up sending another 20 people from the company, I think it was, to go do this same training. So in some ways, when enlightenment comes to the C-suite, it, it, it does immediately affect and sometimes it takes longer, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and that's the thing. That's what you hope. Wh- whatever they're going to, whether they're, whatever they're doing from the top, from a development standpoint, you hope they're there, that's their aha moment that, like you said, they send other people or they invest differently in other people. They change the way they lead 
which becomes, you know, better for the entire organization. Let's face it, you know, today, as we talked about in these times, um, you know, organizations have to really weather this huge change going on. And I don't have any statistics that tell me anything about this, and it would be too early anyways, but I would bet those organizations that are actually do invest in their people may be weathering things with the people that they have, they be, are becoming more resilient and they may be doing things differently and rubbing things better than some of the other organizations. It's interesting. I was having um, this same conversation with, with our good friend, Kathy Toll, who works in uh, change management and transformation as mm-hmm. well. And we were talking about it in terms of pandemic planning and crisis planning. It's the same, same concepts. I mean, I keep jo- it's funny. I need to call somebody at Target. I know some people there and find out if what I keep saying about them is true. I mean, Target mobilized overnight to have, you know, the plastic stands in front of the, the cashiers and, you know, cart wipes and all the different cleaning stuff. Like they didn't write that plan overnight. They clearly had that plan in a drawer. They had to have. And those are the things that I think when we get to the end of this pandemic, we're going to look back and say, okay, the companies that had pandemic plans in place did better. And I think you're exactly right that when we look at companies who had previously invested in leadership development, in in strong ethical development, I wonder if we will see less layoffs from those companies mm-hmm. or increased employee satisfaction over the long term, less less turnover in the next year or two. It'll be really fascinating. Harvard Business Review is going to be stacked with stuff about this for years and years. I was going to say, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a study we should all get together and put our collective heads and do ourselves. I know. We should. That would be really fun. That would be it really would fun. Be. So let's talk about CEOs and kind of the C-suite in general, because I know there are a lot of the folks that you work with in this officer level or, or management committee level people. I mean, the truth is, and it's, this isn't a dig, it's, a, it's just the truth. When you get to that level, you have to have a certain amount of ego and you have to have a certain amount of gravitas and sense of who you are. How do you at, at Intelead and as you go in and talk to these folks, how do you convince C-suite leaders that they still have room to grow? Well, it's funny because you, you know, you do, and you have to talk, as you know, you have to talk their language, right? Yeah. So you have to find out what their pain is, whether it's their pain, you know, happening within their team or whether it's a pain lower down in the organization and figure out, well, what might address that? A lot of times I'll also, I actually have been able, lucky enough to have clients where I can sit in with the, you know, senior team and just kind of observe a meeting. Oh, wow. What's happening and to see, you know, what, how is the interaction going? You know, who's, who, who's, as you say, you know, the egos, you know, who, who's interacting, who's talking more, those types of things. So, which is, can be really eye opening. You know, obviously there's a level of trust there. Right. They're going to allow something like that. But, you know, <laughs> I'm picturing you like walking into a CEO's office and saying like, excuse me, Chad, do you know you're talking over all of the women in this meeting all the time? Exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about that a little bit. But here's the other thing. To some extent, you know, we were just talking before about you know, some of the different programs. I think to some extent, there's certain types of leadership training and leadership development, I should say, that's actually kind of... Um, sexy, so to speak. So if you're going to executive coaches, right, which is one of the things I do as part of my practice, there's 
executive coaches, it used to be the only people who had those in the C-suite were those who were doing something wrong. Right. Now there's a lot of executives, even if the organization isn't going to hire them a coach, they're going to, they're hiring them on their own because they want to get better in certain arenas. Sometimes they'll hire multiple coaches. They'll hire somebody to help with kind of the, their style and those like types of things and somebody to help with business acumen if maybe they're new to a, new to an industry. And then the other thing that they do is, you know, what you went through, you know, some of these executive MBA programs or these little short-term pro, you know, two-week programs from these elite schools like Kellogg and Wharton and things like that. Those are sexy and those are like, oh, my organization is going to send me. This is, this is good. Right. So, and it's a signal to the people around you as well. Right. Um, when I think about people going even to Kellogg, I, I was partially sponsored by my company. They paid a little bit of my tuition, but there are companies um, that were in my class at Kellogg that routinely sponsor two or three executives a year to go through Kellogg, Wharton, University of Chicago, the big business schools. And if you are internally chosen to go to one of those programs, it has signaled to everyone around you that you are on the track for whatever it is inside that company. Absolutely. When, when, the, when organizations do that, those are usually organizations that have um, some type of a high potential program. They might not call it exactly mm -hmm. that. They may call it something else. And that is one of the tracks of the development. So some of the other development would be, so it would be getting your, your MBA. Another piece of it might be if you've been in a line role going into operations role or vice versa. It might be going out away from whatever the corporate office is and working remotely in you know, some other office. So there's a lot of things that go into those development plans, and that's exactly one of them. And you're right, that is prestigious. And if you're in, you know, people usually talk, it's like, oh, you know, Marcy's on that track. Right. It's interesting. Um, I think there are trends and I'd be, I'd be fascinated to hear what you think about them. When you look at those competencies in a leader that must be developed. So really for those of our listeners who are either looking at that C-suite or they're a few levels below and thinking about it, when you are coming in to coach or develop a leader, what are the biggest skills that you find they are missing or that they need in their growth? Um, kind of selfishly for, for our listeners, what kind of skills could they be developing now that, that might help them get there and not have those derailers um, when they get to that level? Um, great question. Uh, let me talk about one that is foremost on my mind and a lot of other leaders' mind is leading change. That yes. is something that organizations don't really, unless they actually do a planned some type of planned change, you know, a technology implementation, a uh, rebranding, uh, or, you know, something you're through a merger and acquisition, something like that. They don't think about the change stuff. Well, guess what? Everybody's getting their min mini MBA right now in how to lead change. Right. And how to lead through it, how to, how to lead yourself, how to lead your team, what to do about it. So that's a big one that I think anybody listening to this should kind of say, hmm, let me kind of look into that. Now, is that really something that, um, you know, I go in and coach on? Not particularly. Sometimes it's part, you know, some of those, there's 
components of it. The other, but the big one, usually it comes down to the same thing, Marcy, you know, we've talked about this when we've all just been sitting around talking communication. Yes. I mean, in communication at various levels, a lot of times for, you know, a more senior, they need to get better at their, um, you know, communication to large groups. So, you know, and there are people who's very, presentation styles even. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And there's people who actually do specific coaching on, you know, those types of communications, those style and how do you present to groups and how do you, you know, create your message and things like that. Uh, But also just communication, you know, how you're communicating with people in terms of, you know, to me, leadership is all about asking questions and being curious about the people that are part of your team and what they're doing and not always giving the answers. And a lot of people, the higher up they go in, in a role, they don't know how to do that anymore. So that's a big piece of it. Mm-hmm. Executive presence, I think, is another one. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's huge because you want, when you're in a company, whether you're a, a, an employee or a stakeholder or a shareholder, you want an, a CEO whose vision and presence inspires you and wants you to, wants to make you invest more, whether it be invest more time, invest more money, invest more energy. So that executive presence piece certainly contributes there. Absolutely. You know, and it's, you know, I mean, I know we're not talking about, you know, women yet. I know we're going to, but women leaders, but you know, that's, that can be a big one in terms of, you know, the perception, unfortunately, as we both know, um, you know, in terms of, you know, what type of executive presence from everything from how you, you know, you know, how you dress to how you speak to all of that. So absolutely. And the inspiration I think is key. So before we shift there, I just, as you were talking, I pulled up one of my favorite quotes from a Kellogg professor, Sergio Ribello, who everybody should follow Sergio right now. He's, he's just the foremost thinker in world economics and especially in the changing world economics. But he started his world economics class with us with this quote, leaders who can run companies are a large group. Leaders who can run companies when the world changes are a very small group. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And as you were talking, I thought this is exactly what it, I mean, it's, it's exactly that. Like leaders who communicate well, generally pretty large group. Leaders who communicate well when shit hits the fan, pretty small group we're finding out right now. You know, and if you can be those leaders, if you can develop those that executive presence, that change management ability, and that uh, communications ability, when the world changes, you will be a much desired leader. Yeah. And, and people will, people will, I think, will stand up and take notice because people will start, you know, the social media, people start talking about it. Absolutely. So let's shift, as we said, and talk a little bit about women because um, women leaders and and women in leadership is one of your areas of expertise. And obviously with this podcast, one of our favorite things to talk about. So in your experience as a a consultant in this area of training and development, leadership development, are men more willing to invest in their own development than women are? I don't think so. I actually almost think it's the opposite. Great. Um, when When a woman let's say a woman is looking at joining a new organization at any level. One of the things women look for is what kind of training there's going to be. What kind of a development path is there? Because that's really important to them to know that there's something kind of, that there's something laid out 
and there's something that, you know, she can kind of follow, you know, at least, to, at least initially, because it's really, really important to women. Mm-hmm. And I also think, I mean, I'm contacted by more women who work in organizations looking for coaches, an executive coach on their own dime versus the organization wanting to pay for it. And there's various reasons they do that. Um, sometimes it's because they might be, you know, trying to go for a, a, you know, a more senior role and they want to kind of prepare themselves. Sometimes it's just because they think it's, they, they can be a better leader where they are. So it, it, um, you know, it's across the board of why they do it. But from that standpoint, my anecdotal data and, you know, what I know about what women look for in an organization, I would say women are really do want to develop and will go out and seek it out themselves. Yeah, it's interesting. Again, I should start a list of all the things I say. Someone should do a PhD thesis on this, but it will be interesting to know of the professional development that happens for women versus men, how much is paid for out of pocket. Because I would guess that men are more likely to ask their bosses for money for things like this than women might be. I was just going to say, I, I, I agree with you because, because we know kind of the the tendency of what the conclusions are that are jumped to sometimes with men versus women in the organization. And a woman might be concerned that she might be looked at as not as, is development, not as developmentally um, to the level she should be, or as a weakness or something like that, where a man would be like, Hey, I just want to get better. Right. Right. Well, and I think men, it would be interesting too. I think men have, have the tendency when, given negative feedback to then say, okay, get me a coach, pay for me to get a coach and, and we'll fix this. Where if women get negative feedback, we tend to maybe go try to fix it ourselves without involving our corporation. Which, which, yeah, which could be an executive coach. I would also say, you know, if a woman finds herself in that position and doesn't want to ask for whatever the reason, find mentors. Mentoring yeah. is huge. And mentoring does so much for women in an organization. So that, that's kind of a, a different route to take, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So how important do you think, as we hear, I mean, I think you're right that women do tend to seek out leadership development. We tend to find those coaches. We tend to go look for it, whether it's on our own dime or someone else's. So if it's true that women are finding that, it, is leadership development part of the key to shattering the glass ceiling or how does it coordinate? Do you think? I think that's part of it. I mean, I think because again, as I said before, you know, leadership development isn't just, isn't just classes. It's the coaching. It's the um, different roles that you have, you know, because so many women think about it. There's so many women that were in staff roles versus line roles. And in order to ascend, you have to, you have to have that line experience. I mean, I remember, you know, to have talked to a number of people over the years of, you know, of working that's like, yeah, they didn't give me the promotion because I don't have the line experience or I interviewed and I was one of the last two, but I didn't have the line experience. So that's, a, that's absolutely a big piece of it is, you know, is the whole development. But I also think it's the whole idea of shattering the glass ceiling it actually starts at entry level. Mm-hmm. I mean, w- men and women come into the organizations at about 50-50. 
And the statistics are starting to say that as the, the first promotion that starts in the first level of managers, about 62% of the men are given the promotions. Mm-hmm. So the numbers get smaller and smaller the higher up you go, which really sucks. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And it's, it's building the pipeline. Right. And it's, mm-hmm. it's those kinds of things. I think, you know, I, I don't know. I tried to look before we talked cause I knew we were going to talk about this and I couldn't find the exact statistic, but I know that generally when you look at female CEOs, they're hired from, from inside the company and male CEOs tend to be more of a mix, right. Of, and so women tend to grow up in the company they become CEO of and like you said, the ladder gets thinner and thinner and thinner as it gets to the top. So there's less people to choose from. And that's one of the articles that I read was talking about not necessarily male versus female, but hiring a CEO internally versus externally and just not having the pipeline at all internally. And then how do you develop that pipeline at, you know, specialist level and coordinator level and then manager level and, you know, all of those kinds of places. Yeah. I mean, and it really does. It has to be an entire a kind of concentrated type of a, a process and you do have to look at it from entry level because if you just start looking at it you know when when your people are in have the manager title of whatever that is in your organization if they just start looking there it's already behind the eight ball right so you know i was looking up some of the statistics the stats too because i'm good with my knowledge but i never remember numbers right. and the number i saw you know, you're talking about internal versus external is that um, about 85% of all CEOs are actually from within. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a pretty, pretty decent number. Yeah. And then I was reading, it's funny, I I read something and I think this was from a consultant um, on what the ideal number of internal hires is, is more like 6%. Um, that you should be high. I mean, if you've done your job, you should be pulling an internal CEO, something like 90 plus percent of the time. And the fact that it's more like 80, 80, you know, it Mm -hmm. says that maybe they're going outside too often. And that's the thing. I always wonder in companies, now there's reasons, right? There's reasons to go get an external CEO. Like you think about what happened to Uber in the last few years, you know, they had to go get somebody externally um, for PR reasons and and really to change culture. But it's like, if you don't have five people that you could potentially put in that seat, if the CEO, you know, passed away or or whatever that would look like, you are not doing your job. Well, there's a lot of organizations that don't have succession plans. And that's what you're talking about. I yeah. mean, they haven't, they haven't looked at, you know, developing people so that you do have those, those choices right? When, when something happens or when, you know, whether it's planned or the unplanned. And yeah, it's, it really is surprising even, you know, obviously large organizations do, but a lot of midsize ones don't. And I think it's really imperative that they do because then they're not scrambling. Right. And that you include, it's, it's funny, I've, I was having this conversation with some business school colleagues a couple of years ago, and it wasn't just my former company, but a lot of people's former companies had, you couldn't be put in someone's succession plan unless you were at a certain level in the organization, which locked a bunch of women out of succession planning in oh, general. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, because that's, that's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Versus some of the more progressive organizations are saying the succession plan must include you know, right. women in diversity, in diversity talent. Right. So yeah. it's just, it's a fascinating catch 22. 
So I think a lot of breaking the glass ceiling or women ascending into these C-suite roles or, or, you know, even director and VP level roles is about having a strong personal brand. And I know this is something that you're really passionate about. So how do you advise your clients and the women that you work with on developing that strong personal brand, both internal to their organization and externally so that they can climb to the levels they want to? Yeah. I mean, I, I, this is kind of, you're right. This is one, one of my two passions. I mean, women in leadership and this is I'm kind of passionate about, and a lot of it comes down to, you know, generational. So let's say I was raised in a generation where while I had fiercely supportive parents, I was also told that as a girl, you know, do a good job and everybody's going to notice and you'll get yeah. your, you'll get your accolades. Um, I don't think is, you know, your generation in, in some, you know, now I don't think that's quite the same all the time sometimes, but sometimes it is, but it's cultural too. Mm-hmm. So, and we know that's not the case, right? We know that we have to, we're not going to just be noticed by doing a good job. So what I t- start talking to women early in their career is they have to figure out how to self-promote and they have to figure out what they want to be known for in their organization. So um, the self-promoting, because we're not good at tooting our own horns, a lot of us, you know, there's other ways to do it uh, within your organization to kind of stand out. I, I actually talk about these 20 ways to stand out without bragging and some different things you can do to make sure that your manager and other people in the organization kind of see you both in the work that you do and some of the things that you volunteer for and do for and get involved in within and across the organization. But you also want to be authentic and make sure you're doing things that are what you want to be known for. So if you want to be known for, um, you know, technology of some way, shape or form, then, you know, you don't want to start doing things that are outside of the technology realm of things because you want your brand to be consistent so there's, there's just different ways to do that. Within yeah, the I love, I will link this article that you wrote on your site, 20 Ways to Stand Out Without Bragging, because I, I read it back when you wrote it about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it's such a, a, a clear and easy and concise guide for women. And I will, I'll link it in the show notes so that people have it. Awesome. I'm actually working on turning it into an ebook. So once that's done... I'll give that to you and you can, you can even link that too. Fantastic. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I think generationally there's so much when it comes to what we were told. Right. And I, you grew up in this, you know, kind of almost meritocracy focused generation of, of do your best show up and do, and you'll be rewarded. I think we grew up when, and I, you know, I'm right on the cusp of, of Gen X and Gen Y, um, but definitely I think more millennial than, than X. We grew up with these baby boomer parents who said like, you can do anything you want to do and you can be anything you want to be. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us entered business and we climbed really fast. And then this crazy thing happened to us. This like, it's funny. I, I joked with somebody the other day, the ceiling happens to women in their early and mid thirties. And it's not the glass ceiling because that's higher and we're not there yet. It's this other thing in your career where being young and ambitious and hungry and hardworking, all those things that our parents told us to be, were seen as good. And then you get to this moment in your career and we're told to 
slow down and be grateful for where we are and, and be patient. Yes. Yeah. Be patient. It's okay. And I actually think sometimes, and this isn't a dig on mothers, but sometimes this behooves mothers because they're told that it's okay to step, take a step back. It's okay to, to parent for a little while. And then once they sort of come back in, lean back in after parenting, then they're like old enough to ascend to hit the next ceiling. You know, it's just an, it's an interesting thing. And I think that's, what's really, I think there's a lot of angry as hell millennials out there who are like, wait a minute, like my baby boomer parents told me I could do whatever I did as long as I worked hard enough, you know? And it's, it's sort of, it's a different side of the same coin that you're saying is like, we were told work hard, you'll be rewarded. And at some point that might not be true. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is interesting. You know, I've never thought of it from that, that perspective, Marcy, and in, and how that impacted you all, because I, because I, mm-hmm. I saw it, but I never really thought about, you know, how it was really impacting. And then the choices you make from there on your career, especially if you don't take the step back as a woman to, to raise a family or start a family yeah. and you, know, you do other things. I think that's why, you know, it makes sense why you see so many women, millennial women, you know, starting their own businesses. Exactly. There's this, it's funny. If I have another career book in me, which I don't know if I do, this is it. I keep having this conversation and I keep joking that it's like old enough to know better, but still too young to care because there's this mass exodus of 35 to 40 year old women happening in corporate right now. Um, and it's why we see all of these, you know, women business lady boss kind of things resonating mm-hmm. so strongly because we're all just fucking sick of it. Like we want to keep, keep going. We want to grow. We want to get to the next level. And when we can't, there is this sense, you know, I, I speak for myself, but I had a great podcast a couple of weeks ago with um, Allie Lefevre and Lindsay Rush from Obedient Agency. They felt the same thing, stepped out, started their own business, making more money than they were in corporate. Same thing for me, you know, but then I wonder, this is the catch 22 that I'm like, somebody needs to research this and, and maybe I will at some point. What's going to happen in 10 years when all of us are still out, Right has the pipeline for women in CEOs then just dried out because we all right. said, screw you, we're not doing this. Yeah. I, d- I still think there's, there's still always going to be people, women who stay in. Yeah. I think. Um, but you're, but the pipeline might not get any bigger mm-hmm. depending on, you, you know, that, you know, you've given yeah. me a lot to think about on this whole, on this whole mindset of why millennial women and men, I think there's yeah. millennial men doing it too. I don't think this is just women are doing that. I'm going to, I'm going to ponder that one. Yeah. It's interesting. I I mean, there's lots of reasons, right? Like barriers to entry on entrepreneurship are much lower than they were 15 years ago and all there's lots of reasons, but it's a fascinating topic. Well, and people always ask me, would I ever go back into corporate? I mean, I've had my consulting practice now. I always forget the number of years now, 15 years, I think 16 years, something like that. Um, And it's like, you know, one of the reasons I didn't go back in when I kind of fell into consulting, which is kind of really what happened, is that I was tired of been there, done it. Pro- I proved myself, yep. got where I did. Then sometimes I changed an organization, proved myself again, as a lot of times as the woman, you know, that type of a thing. So right. that's my generational thing is I just got tired of proving myself all the time, time and time again. Yeah, Absolutely. 
So when you think about personal branding in your own business, so coming out of the corporate sector, like you said, you've been doing this for 15, 16 years. How important is building your personal brand for you and, and for what you do at Intelead? I mean, I think those of us who are entrepreneurs like you and I are, um, we are our personal brand. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't think we really have a choice and social media, you know, makes it that everybody can see, you know, for however much we're out there on social media, whichever one you choose. So I think it's critical to really be your authentic self and actually, you know, to, to build it in, in the way that you want to be seen and what you want to be known for. You know, I personally, I use LinkedIn all the time. That's, that's yeah. my that's my uh, social media of choice. That's where I put my thought leadership out there. That's where I, you know, support others and things like that because, and that's part of my, my personal brand is supporting others and giving accolades and applause to everybody else as much as, you know, we want them a lot of times for ourselves. So yeah, I think you have to do, I think you have to do it inside an organization too, Mm -hmm. because it's harder and harder to get noticed so people mm-hmm. have to know what you are, what you stand for, you know, as women, especially finding mentors, finding sponsors, those types of things that can help promote your personal brand inside. It's, it's both. It has to be done all, all over the place. You can't get away from it now. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious for your business. And it, I ask this, you know, I always ask questions on this podcast selfishly just because I want to know them and hopefully they help other people. Um, did you struggle? I'm, and I've had this struggle myself and actually my husband disagrees with me vehemently um, on whether or not to name your business or to make, or to really be on your brand of how did you come to into lead versus, you know, Alexis consulting or whatever that might've looked like. I remember going through, you know, I think I did, I started out before I, before I incorporated, I started out and I think I just called it Alexis G or something like that. Yeah. But I, I just didn't want my name with it. And I don't think 15, 16 years ago when I came up with the name, it wasn't as, it wasn't quite as norm to do, to have your name. It was, you know, kind of to have, to have a company name. And I happen to have a really good friend from Kellogg who was, uh, I was, branding expert. So she helped me come up with it. And I really, you know, and I really like it and the process we went through to do it. I, I think for maybe a very short minute, I might've thought about having my name, but then I was like, if I could come up with the right name, I could also somewhat say, hopefully represent what it's about too, because Alexis G or Alexis Gladstone, which is also a mouthful letter wise, (laughs) I was just like, eh, you know, I'm just not sure. So I didn't really think much about it. I think it's great now. You know, I, I you know, Marcy Tweet, I, you know, I love that you're yeah. doing that. And I think it's great. It's funny. Charlie disagrees with me and he thinks I need to name the business. And I just, maybe I will. And I think that's part of it too. Like one of the things that drives me crazy is when people like leave corporate and then they like start a consultancy and they name it something and they develop a website that looks like a big consulting agency. And I'm like, I know it's just you. Everybody else knows it's just you. <laughs> like, let's not, like it's, I don't want to be that person either. So maybe I'll name it someday, but for now it's Marcy Tweet Consulting. And that's what I incorporated under too. But, you know, again, it's because you're, you know, you have a reputation out there in terms of what you're known for and your, the sustainability and all that. And so to have people be easily find you under Marcy yeah. Tweet, 
I think is, I think it's brilliant personally, but I'm not a branding expert either. Well, thank so you. We'll just I appreciate it. <laughs> I also think because I run this podcast and then as you know, I'm starting another podcast in my, mm -hmm. in my sphere. It's like, how many brands do I need to have? <laughs> I can have my brand and then the podcast brand and then the business brand and blah, it's just a lot. Well, and you, you take one of my, you know, my friend Judy, who you've heard me talk about before. Yeah. She has a couple different, different programs and products. So she has those two businesses. And now she's just started, incorpor not incorporating, but marketing under the brand of her name. Mm -hmm. It's because people are like, well, is she selling in a skirt? Is she walking on the glass floor? You know, now she's, yeah. um, so she's actually, she's moving in the direction you're at. Yeah. I think a lot of people are doing that. So it'll be interesting to see. So as we're wrapping up, here's my, my final personal branding question for you. And this is something that I know about you because we're friends in, in real life. You do one of the best jobs of anybody I know at being Alexis Gladstone in every situation you're in. Like there's not a business Alexis and a friend's Alexis. There's just one Alexis. And I think people struggle so much with that. I struggle so much with that of like showing up at a speaking engagement and suddenly like turning it on and feeling like you have to be a different person than you were in every other situation. How in the world have you managed to have such a strong sense of your brand and not let people knock you off of it in any situation? Uh, okay. So when I saw that you were going to ask me this question, my question for you is, is this, does this mean I'm too business and in, in personal or is this... Mm -mm. <laughs> Okay. No, no, not at no, all. I, I really just think take you it. are who you are. That's one of the things I love the most about you is like, you know, I always, what I joked about the, I was telling someone about you the other day and I was like, the thing about Alexis is she will never say anything to you that's not true. So like if Alexis says, I like the way you, I love your dress today, you know, she really loves your dress today because if she didn't, <laughs> she would tell you, you look like an idiot. <laughs> or I wouldn't say that. Or I just wouldn't say anything. If it you wouldn't worth say it. anything, but I'm like, okay, you always so know whatever it. you say is true. Okay. So this is a compliment. Awesome. Just wanted to make sure. Um, <laughs> <It is>. I, <laughs> I, think, I think this has come with age and experience because I don't think I was like this, this growing, growing up in my career. Okay. Um, you know, again, gr again, when I started in corporate America, you know, we all had to emulate men. We dressed like yeah. men. We wore blouses with bow ties and you, and you know how much I'm into fashion. So you know how much I probably yes. hated that. Uh, but I do think it's something that I have grown into as, you know, as I've gotten older and grown more, my own confidence. I mean, let's face it. I'm not confident every day. I'm sure you're not confident every day, but mm -hmm. as I've grown my own confidence, my conf confidence in the value I can add with my clients, the confidence in the value I add to my friendships, that it's just, you know, I can't do anything but show up and be myself because yeah. it's all about integrity and to me integrity is paramount so, so true. that that I guess when you see what you see whether you whether we're having a glass of wine or on a podcast I know I love it and so for for those of our listeners who don't know us personally you and I are good friends with a, a group of women but I met you and our dear friend Kathy like 10 years ago, I wish like if I could have a, a time machine, I would love to go back and know you guys in your twenties and thirties when, you know, because to me, you're so put together and so wonderful that I'm like, what did Alexis look like when she was a mess? <laughs> like, who 
would love to. Shoulder pads in my 20s. I would love to see that. (laughs) I would love to see it. It'd be so fun. I love it. Well, Well, thank you so much. Oh, well, that'd be great. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know that our Office Baggage listeners are really going to value this this discussion, and it was fantastic to have you. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. It's so, it's so nice when we can have like this conversation and really know each other and, and, and get into it. So I really appreciate it. <laughs>